seniors, huh? Aren't you kind of tempted to want to go and hear what they're saying about us? <laughs> I got to be careful who I look at when I scan the... This is my 41st Christmas preaching. So three or four sermons every year times 41 years. I am extremely grateful that I've never encountered sermon block at Christmas. Um, grateful that it's always been fresh for me. Um, I just have a hard time doing old sermons. So just because settings have changed and scenery has changed, I, I just can't go and re-preach re an old sermon. I have to I have to redo it, I start from scratch, or I get a couple little nuggets out of it, and away I go. But fortunately, I've, I've never found that, that preaching at Christmas is sort of dull or boring or same old thing kind of idea. But there is something about our human nature, I think, that the old story kind of becomes the same old story. It becomes, predict we know how it ends. We know where it's going to go. It becomes predictable, and there's sort of this idea of kind of empty repetition, redundancy, rote memory, and we know the story. And it, it, when you get into that sort of mode, it reminds me of the response from my youngest grandson. Um, during the Tim Hortons hockey card thing, I decided that Grandpa was going to give each of the boys, uh, mail them a set of uh, package of hockey cards every week till Christmas. And I thought that was pretty cool. Um, so Hayden, my youngest grandson, gets his first pack of hockey cards from us. And Sharon, do you remember what he said? Boring. <laughs> he's still getting them in the mail, so I don't know what he's doing with them, but he's still getting them in the mail. But there's, there's that predictability, right? And that's sort of the, the ho-hum kind of, it just becomes, and it's almost like easy at Christmas, especially church wise, I think it's kind of easy to get sort of caught in autopilot. We look for the things we're familiar with. We look for the things we like to hear about. We look for the songs that we like to sing. You think that's all there is to find at Christmas? There was an old commercial, Cornflakes did it, I don't know, it might have been 20 years ago. When you're seniors, you kind of lose track of how long ago is long ago. But there was an old cornflakes commercial, I think it was back in the 90s, and it went something like this. They were trying to rebrand cornflakes a little bit, and they, the phrase was, try them again for the very first time. Don't assume you know what cornflakes taste like. And so the commercial went for, I think, a fairly like, long time. Try them again for the very first time. I want to encourage you this Christmas to read the Christmas story. It, you're only dealing with really two, chap four, two chapters in Matthew, two chapters in Luke, right? So, so you could say, well, 41 years of preaching, how does it not get old? How does it not get boring? I think a lot of it has to do with how we approach the Word of God. The Word of God should never become the same old thing. The Word of God, we are told, is alive, it's active, it's incisive, it penetrates, it convicts, it makes us aware, it enlightens us, it illuminates us. It's more than words. The Word of God is like the many facets of a diamond. Depends on the angle you're coming at it from. And in some ways, that's a good way to look at the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's like four people at a crossroads, at an intersection. 
And Matthew, Mark, and Luke are down at ground level seeing something happen in the intersection. And from every angle, they're going to see something a little different. You're not gonna, if you're an eyewitness to an incident at an intersection, depending on what corner you're on, you're going to see things a little different. And then the way to look at the Gospel of John is like John's up on the 20th floor of the apartment building. He's looking at the same incident, but he's looking at it different. And in some ways, if we approach the Word of God like this multifaceted diamond, there is so much more than words. Maybe what might be helpful is when you come to this Christmas story this year, take a different approach. Maybe think about the person who's writing the story. Maybe try and think about Matthew as he records the story and who he heard it from and how he put the pieces together and why he put some in and why he left some out. Think about it maybe from the standpoint of the author. Think about it from one of the characters in the story. Might be one of the main characters, might be one of the secondary characters, might be one of the no-name characters. Look at the story from a different standpoint. Look at it from the standpoint of the first hearers of that story, because before it was written, it was told. Think about being in that little house church when they first tell the story of the birth of Jesus, and whether it's Matthew's account, or, Mark's, or Luke's account, or even John's account from a different perspective of the coming of Jesus into the world. Maybe even think about it from the standpoint of someone who's never heard the story. There's lots of people in the 21st century in North America who have never heard the story. Take it from a different standpoint. So that's my, my Christmas challenge to you this morning and through this Christmas season, through Advent, every Sunday morning when we come and we light the Advent candle. Today it's the candle of hope. No matter how many Christmas views you've experienced, listen again as if you're listening for the very first time. Take your mind and your memory and your assumptions sort of off cruise control and try to engage with maybe a word or a concept or a phrase or a, an aspect. I like how Curtis picked up something that Adrian had mentioned in his prayer and he ran with that and encouraged us to follow it. Look for that and allow the Holy Spirit to kind of connect those things that God wants you and I to become aware of. But I encourage you, as we approach this Christmas season, uh, read it again, listen to it again as if you're listening to it and reading it again for the very first time. This morning we go to Luke chapter 1, the story of Mary. We're not going to read all there is about the story of Mary. Uh, Luke chapter 1, page 944, if you're working with the pew Bibles there um, that, that are in the, the rack or under the seat in front of you, uh, page 944, Luke chapter 1. Verse 26 begins the story of the account of Jesus' birth. Luke has already told a little bit about the birth of John the Baptist, but in Luke chapter 1, verse 26, the angel now appears to Mary. What's interesting about Mary, some of you may know this, some of you may not know this, but in first century culture, uh, girls were engaged to be married somewhere around the age of 12 or 13. And within a year or so, you were living in the home with the person that you were engaged to. That was the culture. That was the way it was set up. It was the arranged marriage kind of thing. But that certainly rocks our assumptions and our, our perceptions about marriage. So here's this 12 or 13-year-old girl who is already engaged, probably around 13 years of age. You know, when you start to understand the place of children in the first century, children were just almost like accessories in the first century. They, they were your laborers on, uh, uh, in the family business or the, or the family farm. 
Um, and then the female factor in the first century again. Um, sorry, ladies, that's just the way it was in the first century. It, what mattered was being a man. And so here's this 13-year-old girl chosen by God to carry, as we sang, the Savior of the world. And Mary has kind of mixed reactions and mixed emotions as you go through the story, and you're probably very familiar with the story. Verse 29, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. She's kind of afraid, but she's kind of in awe. She's kind of scared, but at the same time, she's overwhelmed with the appearance of this heavenly being in her midst telling her what God is about to do. And the names used by Gabriel to describe what is going to happen, the names such as the Son of the Most High, the Son of God, the Most High, remind us that the one to be born is the one who fulfills prophecy, who fulfills the promise that was given to King David a thousand years before, that his throne would never end, his reign would never end. Well, here is the promise being fulfilled. And as it turns out, Mary's relative, Elizabeth, as the angel says to Mary in verse 36, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. <laughs> Senior seems to be a thing. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. And it's interesting to see Mary and Elizabeth here as sort of the first responders who get it right. Zachariah has had an encounter with the angel who is going to tell him about Elizabeth having a son in her old age named John. Zachariah doesn't believe it. Zachariah doubts. Zachariah is then struck dumb as a priest who serves in the temple. He comes out, he can't talk, and everybody's going, what? what's happened to him? What's up with this? Well, Elizabeth and Mary represent sort of the proper response. Mary's, Mary's response, verse 36, verse 38. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. And Elizabeth's response is again a faithful response because she is prompted, verse 39, at the time Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah where she entered Zachariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, these two women are templates, paradigms for what a faithful response to God looks like. Interesting, I think, that the first witnesses, the first witnesses to the truth about God becoming a man, God, the incarnation, taking upon flesh, human flesh, in the conception of Jesus that the first two witnesses are Mary and Elizabeth. Very interesting to me that the witnesses to the resurrection were women. The first witnesses to the resurrection were women. And in the first century, sorry ladies, but the testimony of a woman didn't count when it came down to the testimony of two or three witnesses. Whether it was the Jewish culture, the Greek culture, or the Roman culture, the women's testimony didn't matter. God seems to have a slightly different approach when he's at work. And so in Luke chapter 1, verse 39, Mary gets ready and she hurries to the town in the hill country of Judah. 
So Mary, when she hears this news and hears that her relative Elizabeth is also expecting, she heads south. It's about a, anywhere from an 80 to 100 mile journey from Nazareth down south of Jerusalem to see her relative Elizabeth. And there's an interesting parallel happens in the stories. If you read a little bit about earlier in chapter 1 about the birth of John and how it's going to happen, and then you read about the birth of Jesus and how it's going to happen, and the way Luke sort of parallels both lives, there's a lot of similarities, but without a doubt, Jesus is superior to John. Why is that important? Well, because in the first century, in that kind of culture, the lesser would always go to the greater. Okay, The lesser would always pay honor or pay tribute to the greater. So the expectation in the first century would be that Elizabeth would go to see Mary because the lesser honors the greater. You got the reverse happening here in that the greater, Mary, carrying the baby Jesus, goes to the lesser, Elizabeth, carrying the baby John. Just the way God likes to turn things upside down, right? Conventional wisdom kind of gets tipped on its head when God's at work. And it's been kind of a, a very hectic opening to the story of, of the birth of Jesus. There's been these very intense incidents of angels appearing and the people's varying responses. And then as verse 39 said, Mary, when she went to Elizabeth, she hurried. I don't know, four or five day journey. I don't know how much you could speed it up by hurrying, but Mary hurried. She takes off and she's pretty intense and the situation is pretty intense and she's very zealous and eager to see her relative. And so she makes the hundred mile or so journey. And then Luke has an interesting way of just kind of slowing us down. Because in verse 46, he has what we call Mary's song, or the Magnificat, as it is sometimes called. And so it's like there's this there's intensity, there's this action, there's Mary running to see Elizabeth, and then all of a sudden she stops. And she sings. Verse 46, and Mary said, My soul praises the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. There's that word again. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. She understands what's going on. She understands who she's carrying. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months. Everything just kind of slows down and stops. Not a bad thing to try to work into our calendars, I suspect, a little bit, right? Just find places where we can stop and allow it to soak in a little bit word we've used a lot since I connected with Estevan Alliance Church a little over a year ago. We've talked about transition a lot. 
Mary's in a transition period, right? Things are changing. Not only was she engaged and going to be married, and there's that whole transition. Now she's expecting, and she's not just expecting any child. She's expecting the Son of God, the King, the Messiah, the promised ruler. Things are going to change dramatically for her. I think it's safe to say it's not going to be anything like she expected. So as things change, there's this whole new vista. There's this whole new horizon in front of her. Is it good? Is it bad? What's it going to be like? We can read between the lines a little bit. To be a 13-year-old engaged girl who is pregnant, if that's not easy in the 21st century, that's in the cakewalk in the first century. But there's all kinds of Old Testament. So, so in this idea of she's transitioning to a whole new experience, there's this idea of continuity with God at work. And there, there's all kinds of echoes of stuff from the Old Testament that the Jewish people would be extremely familiar with. There's the echoes of the prayer of Hannah, the mother of Samuel from 1 Samuel chapter 1. There is the continuity of God's faithfulness from generation to generation. This phrase that talks about the mighty deeds, he performed mighty deeds with his arm, that takes them back to the way the Exodus was described, the deliverance from Egypt and how the children of Israel got out of Egypt to the promised land, the mighty arm, the mighty deeds that God did with his hands, with his arms for them. So you got this, this mix, the old, the traditional, the classic, whatever word you want to use for the stuff we old people like, right? We can call it classics, we can call it tradition, we can call it familiar. But, but there is that familiar. There, Mary's song is just woven with all kinds of expressions from the Old Testament. At the same time, God is doing something new. And I was reminded of the verse in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 18 and 19, where God says, it's nothing compared to what I'm going to do, for I'm about to do a brand new thing. See, I have already begun. And it's just going to look a little different this time around. Same promises, same concepts, same principles of being, but it's going to look very different. Well, it's going to look so different that I think it's safe to say nobody saw this coming. Joseph is told before the wedding what's going to happen with Mary and what God's plan is and what God's purpose is. And Joseph all of a sudden thinks, okay, time to stop. Turn that around. And he considers divorcing Mary. So Joseph certainly didn't. He had his plans. He had his expectations. This is the way it's going to go. This is the way it always goes. But not this time around. Totally different way it's going to work out. Mary, we already talked about her a little bit, her age, her state, her gender, her family as a virgin. Not the typical choice, not the normal choice. And we say, yeah, but what about Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14? A virgin will conceive and bear a son. That, that was not understood as, as a prophecy per se. It, the, the rabbis of the first century and before Jesus was born hadn't twigged. It was just a story about King Ahaz and a sign that God was going to give him. It wasn't in there like it is in ours because it's in our songs, it's in our music, it's in our reading, it'll be in our Advent reading. But that wasn't familiar. It's familiar to us, but certainly. They didn't have a clue. They didn't have a clue. That was a forgotten passage. So here's Mary. Nobody's going around, oh, Mary, isn't that wonderful? Um, Elizabeth gets it. <laughs> um, 
Zechariah. We talked about Zechariah. He's doing his regular routine, his regular rotation, his regular shift as a priest, and he comes out and he can't talk. Well, that changes everything for Zechariah. Elizabeth. She's old and she's never had children. Now, the good news is there's precedent for that. Sarah, in the Old Testament, with Abraham, she was old when she had Isaac. Hannah was barren when she had Samuel. Samson's mother was barren until she had Samson. So there's precedent, but still, Elizabeth had, had written that off. Joseph didn't see it coming. Mary didn't see it coming. Zachariah didn't see it coming. Elizabeth didn't see it coming. The shepherds didn't see it coming. They were out taking care. Everybody's just kind of doing their ordinary, normal things. And all of a sudden, boom, the angels show up. Kind of challenging for the shepherds because the shepherds were considered unclean. They were the outsiders. It's great for them to service the temple and provide the sheep, but don't guys bring your smelly robes and animals into town. You guys stay out there. We love your service you provide, but you're not welcome. You're unclean. We don't treat people like that, do we? They provide the service for us that we benefit from, but then leave them outside. Persian mystics. Persian mystics see the star, and they come to worship Jesus. Every Jew in the first century knew that the Gentiles were your enemies. Who would have thought three Persian mystics would have been the, the ones to recognize what was going on in Bethlehem? And then we come to the two old-timers, Simeon and Anna. They're just doing their usual thing, hanging out at the temple. Because that's where they were waiting for God to do his work. So I say all that because I think there's a tendency for us as we fall into this sort of standard operating procedure, the same old thing kind of approach, there's a tendency for us to think God's way should always conform to our expectations. Sorry, you might be used to coming to Estevan Alliance Church on Sunday and, and we sing first and then we continue with the service. Well, today we did it different. It's a little thing. I don't know if that upsets anybody or not, but we did it different. We tend to have our own expectations of how things should go, how they should play out. We think we know what God should do. We think we know what the church should do. We think we know what the elders should do. We think we know what the pastor should do. And if my kids are in youth, I think I know what the youth should do. We just have that. That's just a, a natural bent, I think, that's within us that we think we know the way things should go. And then in our prayer calendar today, day one, December 1st, day one, you know what the verse is for our prayer calendar today? Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. Wow. If there was ever a story that reinforced that, it's the Christmas story. Joseph didn't see it coming. Mary didn't see it coming. Zachariah didn't see it coming. Elizabeth, none of them saw it coming. Surprise! There's this challenge we face as followers of Jesus, right? To hold the, the old and the new in tension. This, the old and the new working together in balance. One of the ways to 
address that, I think, is, is to recognize our fallen human nature for the familiar, for the, for, the, for the repetition, for the routine, for the standard operating procedure. We like that. That makes us comfortable. We don't like to be uncomfortable. You think Mary liked being uncomfortable between uh, trembling in fear and knowing she should be worshiping this angelic being? I mean, she's, never mind. I mean, you got both emotions happening at the same time. But there's something about our fallen human nature that just hungers for familiarity. There's nothing familiar about what happens to these people in, in the birth of Jesus. I think the key to handling that tension of the old and the new is humility. And I think it, that's one of the key words, I think, that pops up in, in Mary's song. Verse 46, humble. Verse 46, servant. Verse 50, fearing God. Verse 52, humble. Verse 53, hungry. Verse 54, servant again. All these words speak of those who are least in the eyes of the world. Maybe even in our eyes also. But it's, it's Luke would use the term later on in his gospel. He'd talk about the poor. He'd talk about the poor economically, relationally, spiritually, which includes the oppressed, the neglected, the forgotten, the outsiders, those of low estate, those of low means, those of low status. Humility. Physically, materially, but also internally. They have no stake. They have no right. The poor. The lost. Luke chapter 17, there's a phrase I came across a number of years ago. It's just kind of always helped me keep in perspective what it means to be a servant. Luke chapter 17, it's a couple of random collections of sayings of Jesus, but the one I want is verse 10. Luke chapter 17, verse 10. It's just a reminder. If, if as followers of Jesus, we are servants of Jesus, and I, I don't think you'd argue with me about that. As followers of Jesus, we are servants of Jesus. So what's our posture as a servant? Luke chapter 17, verse 10. So Luke, Luke has taken this idea of humble, poor, lowly, and he's going to run with it throughout, throughout his gospel and in, into the book of Acts. So he says in this story, so you also, when you have done everything, and feel free to read the rest of the story later, so you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done our duty. A servant serves with no expectations. Wow. No expectations of recognition, no expectations of reward, no expectations of acknowledgement. No if I am truly a servant of God, then my posture is, I'm just doing my job. And whatever God does with that, I leave it in his hands. And I think that's for all of us across the board pastor, elder, Sunday school teacher, youth leader, worship leader, instrumentalist, vocalist, usher, greeter, worshiper. That's why those words in Mary's song, I think, are, are so important in understanding this, how we work with the old and the new. It's about humility. It's about our posture to understand how God works, because God works the opposite of how the world works. 
the powerful, the wealthy, those who have control, those who want their own way, they will be brought low. That's how he's worked in the past. That's how he's going to continue to work in the future. And the book of Luke and the book of Acts kind of just remind that. He exalts the lowly and he brings down the proud and the powerful. There is this great reversal in how God works because the wisdom of God is foolishness for mankind. It's just a posture, right? It's interesting that Zechariah, when he was told what was going to happen, he, he doubted. He, he just didn't believe it. Mary just was wondering, how in the world is this going to happen? She's not doubting that it can happen. She just can't figure out what the pieces, how the pieces are going to come together. Zacharias is doubt. Mary's is just open to what God is, is going to do. She just doesn't understand yet. And you know, it's not just outside the church where there's the powerful, the wealthy, the people who like control. I mean, we wrestle with all that ourselves as well. We have the ways and means. We try to use the ways and means to get things to go the way we want. How do we balance? How do we keep that tension of old and new together? Allowing God to surprise us at the same time recognizing that there is a firm foundation that we're established on. Humility. The posture of a servant. And some of you, as soon as you hear that, might think, well, how in the world does anything get done in the church if we all say, I'm just doing my duty. I'm just doing what God has asked me to do and I leave it there. Well, that's not the only principle in Scripture of how we function together as a body, but I think that's where it starts. Things change. Things change and God is in it. Just because I may not like it doesn't mean God can't use it. The posture of a servant for all of us is to accept what God is doing. God exalts, he lifts up the humble, the low, and the poor, and he brings down those who are proud. As our prayer calendar said, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. We do well as followers of Jesus to be open to God working in a way different maybe from what we assume and from what we expect. But then Mary's song closes with words of hope. The last few verses of Mary's song goes back to the beginning. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful, verse 55, to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. So Luke, through, and Mary, through Luke's words, goes back to the promise to Abraham. The promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15, through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. Your, your children, your progeny will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand in the sea. Why? To bless the world. To bless not just the Jewish nation, but to bless the world. And so through Abraham, the promise comes. And through Abraham, the promise of God our Savior is realized. So it takes us back to that Old Testament word of covenant. It takes us back to the covenant idea. That God is a covenant-making God and that God is a covenant-keeping God. And when a covenant is made, according to the sort of treaties at the time that were made. A covenant is, is a bond, a relationship, um, a certified, notarized connection between uh, a powerful person 
and the less powerful. So the greater and the lesser. And so God made a covenant with Israel. And that covenant then became a new covenant prophesied through Jeremiah. I will be your God and you will be my people. I will remove your heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. God is a covenant-making God. God is a covenant-keeping God. And we do well to remember our place. We have a relationship with God because the greater did something for the lesser. Because the one who was the King of Kings and the one who is the Lord of Lords and the one who has come to earth as the Son of the Most High, as the Son of God, did something for us. If you're still in Luke, turn to Luke chapter 22, and you can leave your Bibles open to Luke 22, because that's where we'll go for our communion words this morning from Jesus at the Passover. But I particularly want to connect it with something Luke has in the last account, in the account of the Last Supper. Luke chapter 22, verse 20. After supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This cup. So here's, here's Mary's song. Ends with this talk about God being a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God from generation to generation, all the way back to Abraham. And so at the Last Supper, as they remember the Exodus, as they remember the, the mighty deeds of God and his, his strong arm that got them out of their captivity in Egypt, Jesus says this, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. That lesser, greater thing becomes really important here in understanding what was done for us. You and I bring nothing to the table. I don't know what meetings you go to, and how you feel when you go to a meeting, you probably feel like you bring something to the table. You've got a stake in it. And if I was to confess, I've been to my share of meetings where I've sat there and honestly, sadly thought, I really am the smartest guy in the room. I think it's great we do this every month. I was connected to some Brethren Assemblies when I was unemployed for two years back in the 90s. I was connected to a Brethren Assembly. And we did it every week. And I think there's something to be said for every week. Just the remind, as long as I'm doing it for the right thing, right? If it's rote, if it's repetitious, if it's just boring church cycle of things, it means absolutely nothing. But hopefully every time we come to the table, it means something. Last time we came to the table, I, I apologize. I, I don't know if you remember a month ago, um, we had communion, and uh, we were, the songs were playing. At the end, we'd pass the bread, and we'd pass the cup, and I came up at the end. And I had a, I had a couple ways I was going to go. And all of a sudden, as we're sitting there, we were talking about what the song had something to do with God's love. And it just triggered me in this grandfather mode again. And I don't remember. I just almost lost it. And I, I wasn't planning on going there. I had no idea of going there. And I, for those of you, if that offended you, I never heard that it did, but I just felt very self-conscious that, wow, I'd, I did not see that coming. And um, 
But there's something about every time we come to the table, right? It's not boring. It's not the same old thing. That's why the prayers at the end of each Advent reading will say, talk to one another about how you've experienced hope today. Talk to one another about how you've experienced peace today. Talk to one another about how you've experienced joy today. Right? So it's not the same old thing. It's a living word. It's a living Savior. It's the living Spirit of God. And so Jesus reminds us this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's new. It's different. It's not the same old thing. It's totally different. It's once for all time. It's once for all people. And it is for you. Not singular, plural. Okay? Not singular, plural. We talked about that a lot too, right? You and I see you and we think me. The Bible says you, it says us. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back on the platform as we prepare to uh, eat the bread and drink the cup. I'm going to invite the elders that are serving communion to join me at the front. Is there something this morning, maybe it's in the word of a song we've sung, maybe it's uh, in a word of scripture you've heard, um, maybe it's just something God has brought to mind. It might not even be connected to anything you've heard here, but it, it triggered something in your mind and your heart. I don't think those are random acts of memory. I think there, there's a reason those things trigger. So I invite us just quietly to prepare ourselves. We will pass the bread and then we will eat it together and we'll pass the cup and then we will drink it together. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're welcome to participate. If you have recognized Jesus as, as King of Kings and Lord of Lords of your life and it may not have gone the way you thought it would, but you say, yeah, Jesus died for me. Jesus' blood was for me. Made me, brought me into his family, adopted me into his family. Then we invite you to join us this morning as we participate in eating the bread and drinking the cup. But let's just pause and spend a little time maybe in wonder and reflection.